0: Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our Pulpit Ministry Podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives.
1: can turn, of course, to John's Gospel where we have been and where we will be for quite some time as we travel through John verse by verse, word by word, line by line, passage by passage, seeing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as John being carried along by the Holy Spirit penned. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 through verse 22 today. We're going to be looking at the unpopular Jesus. The unpopular Jesus as defined by our culture in a message titled, The Jesus That They Don't Want You To See. They, and when I speak of they, I want you to understand they who I am referring to are those people who have reduced Jesus to some impotent, weak figure of peace and love and of worldly pleasure and of worldly happiness. Though Jesus definitely is love and peace, and He does desire that you experience true joy in the Lord, We're going to see Jesus unveil Himself today in a manner that speaks of Him in greater detail and a manner that many don't like Him speaking in. They don't like seeing this type of Jesus. We're going to see a side of Jesus that the world hates, but that the Word confirms over and over and over again that He did not come and is not some weakling, some soft, sissified Savior, but that He came as omnipotent God incarnate. In fact, in this account, we're going to see Jesus take a really hard stance on the issues of the day. We're going to see him take a really hard stance toward irreverence. A really hard stance that was based on his indignation. Oh, I know we don't ever want to talk about the Jesus who's angry with sin. We're going to talk about Him today. And I know this, it's going to make some of you very uncomfortable. I pray this. That you not find comfort in how the world defines Jesus, but that you find comfort in the true Jesus of the Word. The true Jesus as defined by the Holy Scripture. And so as we look at this Jesus, I pray today that you will see the Jesus that many do not want you to see. That you will acknowledge and you will bow down to Jesus as the Omnipotent, all-powerful God incarnate who came to this earth to die to set wretched sinners free of which I was the worst. So as we read in John's Gospel, we'll start at verse 12. We'll read it all the way through verse 22 and then we will come back and we will talk about what we see. Verse 12 says, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother. We know this is referring to after the miracle there at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And brothers and His disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. So they leave the wedding feast. They go to Capernaum. They stay for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, He found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves. And others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of Him, What miraculous sign can You show us to prove Your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple He had spoken of was His body. And after He was raised from the dead, His disciples recalled what He had said. Then they believed the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I want us to look at this morning this Jesus that they don't want us to see. And I want you to see Him correctly. Because in seeing Jesus correctly, you can believe in Him correctly. Unfortunately, we live in a time where we have sold Jesus with this American idea and this American picture of who we think that He is, and we have sold this Jesus who is really no Jesus at all. He is not the Jesus of the Bible. And so as we look at the Jesus of the Bible, I pray this. I pray that if you have trusted in a Jesus who is not the Jesus of the Bible, that today that the Spirit of God would make that known to you And that you would cry out to the true Jesus to save you from your sin and the certain wrath that is to come. But I pray this, that if you do truly know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray this, that today you would rejoice in Him afresh and anew. So let's look at this. Let's look at this Jesus that they don't want you to see. They don't want you to see this Jesus because He's not the comfortable Jesus. He's not the convenient Jesus. He's not the fluffy Jesus. In this instance, He's not the happy Jesus. I can promise you this, when Jesus drove the money changers and those selling these items out of that temple court that day, there was not a smile on His face. We're going to see that He was angry. He was upset with the things that were going on. And we're going to see why that's absolutely okay. As we look at this, if you're taking notes, the first thing I want us to see is this. That through this event that we're looking at today, the Jesus that they don't want you to see confronts irreverence. That's one of the reasons they don't want you to see Him. He confronts irreverence. Verse 12 says this, After this He went down to Capernaum with His mother and brothers and and His disciples and they stayed for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. I want you to understand what was going on here today. They had taken the temple which was made for worship and had made it into this bazaar. They had made it into this festival, this marketplace. These were men who were just opportunists. And they knew this. And it's important that we see this in this text, that it was Passover time. And at Passover, these households were required to sacrifice some type of animal. And here we see them coming knowing that they are going to need a sacrifice. And so what had happened here is these opportunists knew that these people would be coming on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. And they said, you know, it would behoove us if we would just sell the sacrifices at the temple court." That way these people don't have to travel with their animals and take care of their animals and and, and make that sacrifice. When they finally get here, we'll have animals ready for them to purchase, of course at an inflated price, so that they will be equipped for what they need in coming and observing the Passover. And what these men did... The emphasis that was once placed on reverence and worship, reverence toward God and worship and adoration for Him, this reverence was now being ignored for the sake of making money based on their greedy attitudes. These sacrifices again were sold at inflated prices. Then we see them mention the, the money exchangers. What were these guys doing? What was their whole purpose? Well, their purpose was this. They were businessmen trying to make a little change off of God. What happened and what they would do is they knew that the Roman coins from all over the different territories would be coming to the temple mount. They knew that there had to be a temple tax that was paid. Every male 20 years of of age and above would have to be required to pay this temple tax. And they wouldn't let him pay the temple tax in any old currency. He had to actually pay in Jewish Tyrene, which was from the city of Tyre that we see in the Bible. And this coin actually contained a little more silver than the average coins of the day. But what they would do is they would exchange in favor of the exchanger and not the exchangee. They would give them less and they would get more. They would change their exchange rates so that the person they're exchanging would benefit and the worshiper would just pay so that they could benefit. They had them, right? They had Roman currency, but they would not accept their Roman currency. We would only accept Jewish currency. And oh, by the way, if you exchange that Roman currency for Jewish currency, you lose, we win. Go pay your temple tax or you can't worship during Passover. These opportunists were making... A mockery of the temple. They had approached temple worship with extreme irreverence. And so I want you to see, Jesus wasn't afraid to confront irreverence. I know we don't even want to talk about reverential fear of the Lord anymore in our society or what we know as reverence for God. But these people had none. They had turned the temple courtyard into a marketplace place so that they could make filthy gain off of all of those pilgrims coming to worship the Lord during Passover. We see that they had irreverence in the form of pragmatic principles. I know many of you don't understand pragmatic principles and how they're being used in the church today. It is that attitude that says, let's do it in a practical manner, and if it works and it achieves the results that we've set out for it to achieve, then surely it's good. And I say this to you, surely it's not always good when we approach things from only the practical and not the biblical sense. And here what they have done in their irreverence for God, they have exchanged reverence for God for this form of pragmatic principles, this good idea. And it seemed like a good idea, right? Isn't it always a good idea when you line your pockets with something? Oh, that's what these businessmen of the day here at the temple court thought. Oh, it was dishonest gain. But they were okay with it because they were actually providing a service for the worshipers. Isn't that how the charismatics justify ripping people off in the name of Jesus? Well, they sowed their seed into my ministry. That's a cool airplane. Sad day that the person who sowed their seed into your ministry can't even eat tonight because you lied to them because you wanted to make filthy gain off of them with lies. And here we have that same scenario. We have these people exchanging the practical for the reverent. This attitude of irreverence toward temple worship and temporal temple sacrifices was due to an irreverence toward God. Their practice was practical, but it wasn't worshipful. It was practical, but it wasn't Worshipful, isn't that true? Many of the things that we see in the modern church, they seem like good ideas, right? Smoke machines and blinky lights and rock concerts, they seem like good ideas. And they'll sure draw a crowd and they'll sure make people feel like they're at the Cynthia Woods Pavilion. But just because they're practical doesn't mean they're worshipful. This is the idea of man exchanging practical for worshipful. You see, the practice was practical, but not worshipful. But we also see this, this practice was popular, but it was not pleasing to God. It's sad that we live in a time where popular rules and pleasing to God is secondary. For popular rules, we like it, therefore it must be good. Can I tell you this? In the church world, it doesn't matter if you like it or not. The question is, is God pleased by it? I came up during the worship wars in ministry. Remember where they used to fight over hymns or choruses? Well, I believe God only speaks through hymns. No, I believe God speaks better to me through choruses. And I say this to you, get in the Word of God He's going to speak to you. I promise you that. And then what you're going to love, you're going to love all music, whether it's a hymn or whether it's a chorus that points to Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And then the argument's over. But what we've done so many times is we've just embraced the popular. What's the coolest, latest trends in the churches and in worship in the church? Instead of asking, is this pleasing to God? Does this bring glory to God? Not do these... Drum beats make me stomp my feet, but do these lyrics point to Jesus Christ and are they consistent with the Gospel and the Word of God? That's what's going to draw us to worship. We see many times, just as they did in this day, we exchange the popular for the God-pleasing and that's what they were doing. Irreverence in the form of pragmatic principles and pragmatic worship. Then we see also irreverence in the form of personal profit. Irreverence in the form of personal profit. These guys were exaggerating the prices of these sacrificial animals. They were exaggerating these prices for no other reason than this. They wanted more money and they knew that these people had to pay whatever the cost was so that they could make sacrifice. They were taking advantage of these worshipers. We know this, that the church world is full of people who are taking advantage of worshipers. And I tell each of you this. Please listen to me. If anyone tells you that you have to give money to Him or a ministry for God to do something in your life, He is lying to you. He is lying to you. God cannot be and will not be bought. He's lying to you to line His Pockets. We give to the Lord's work. Watch this. For no other reason. So that the Gospel can be proclaimed throughout the world. Period. These people were taking that irreverent approach to exaggerate prices of these sacrificial animals because they knew that they were going to be there making sacrifices. So the $15 lamb was now inflated to a $25 lamb. And they just had to pay it. Uh, You know what I'm talking about. Any of you who have ever been to Six Flags or Disney, everything's inflated, isn't it? Because they know this. When you get thirsty, you are trapped in that park and you're going to pay eight bucks for a soda. These same men had the same attitude. We know they're coming. We know that they're coming to this temple to worship. We know that they are going to offer a sacrifice. Let's make what we can make off of that. They were irreverent because of their personal... Profit and their desire for selfish gain. Through exaggerated prices for sacrificial animals and through excessive exchange rates for payment of the required tax. Isn't that a catch-22? We require you to pay this tax. Here, give me your Roman money and I'm going to give you pennies on the dollar back. Thanks. Have a good day. Enjoy your worship. That's what was going on. Excessive exchange rates for payment of the required temple text. Both of these examples. I want you to see this. Both of them stemmed from greed and selfish gain and a lack of fear of the Lord. I know, fear of the Lord. Not a term we use these days, right? We used to talk about people when they truly were reverent toward God in worship. They were what? God-fearing people. Oh, we don't want to use that term anymore because that term's outdated. No, please use that term. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need a group of people to be raised up in this country and in this community who fear the Lord. Who would not. Who would not rip people off in the name of Jesus just to line their pockets. Who would not live their life for selfish benefit. But would live their life for the glory of God. Jesus is not pleased with irreverence toward the Father in any way, shape, or form. Not in our attitudes. Not in our actions. Not in our worship when it is irreverent. It's time the church of God be called back to reverential fear of God. Reverential fear of God. That in our attitudes and that in our worship. Where have we drifted to where there is no trembling in our worship? There is no healthy, reverent fear of who God is. Jesus enters the scene here and he confronts their irreverence immediately. Psalm chapter 5, verse 7. This is David's attitude toward worship. He says, But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down toward your holy temple. He didn't come in in an attitude of worship that said, God, give me more. God, give me something. God, do something for me. Do something on my behalf. He came in humility. And He bowed down in worship to the Lord there in His holy temple. And, And in this moment, Jesus has seen that they have drifted away from this reverential attitude and reverential fear for God. First Peter in the New Testament, Peter says this, since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, Don't we? He says this, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Can I ask a question? Where is reverent fear in the house of God? Where is reverent fear in the lives of so-called believers? Where is reverent fear in the church? In the lives of those Christians who make up. The church. Jesus wasn't afraid to confront irreverence. Oh, we have so many so-called pastors and preachers these days who are afraid to confront irreverence. The Lord, our God, is a holy God. We are to approach Him in fear and trembling and humility. Every man in Scripture who ever knew Him and who approached Him, that is the exact way that they approached Him. He is holy. And we are everything opposite of that in and of ourselves. Jesus was confronting irreverence here in the midst of this crowd. Secondly, we see this. Not only did He confront irreverence, He communicates indignation. He communicates indignation. And I know what's going to happen here. Someone is going to say, well, I don't think that that angry Jesus you're talking about is the Jesus of the Bible. Let's just see. Let's just look at Him. So He made a whip out of cords. Note to self, He did not make a feather duster. He made a whip out of cords. I want you to think about this for a second. He sat down on a stone right there in the temple court. And he took the strands of that whip and he weaved that whip together for one purpose. And that one purpose was to exercise his indignation at what was going on in irreverence there on the Temple Mount. Well, that's not the Jesus I choose to believe in. Then you choose to believe in an unbiblical Jesus. Stop calling Him Jesus and call Him Bob. Because He is not the Jesus of the Word. He was indignant. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I can't believe Jesus would do this. That's because some slick-talking preachers have been keeping you from seeing the truth all these years. He flipped over the table and He ran out all of the irreverence from the temple mount. Why? Because this was a holy place and He knew a holy Father and He wanted these people to understand that He is upset with what's going on. Jesus confronts irreverence and then He communicates His indignation. We live in a world where we act like Jesus ought to apologize when He's upset about sin. The same world where people have removed a holy God's right to be indignant. Who does God think He is to be upset with me? He's God. And He's holy. And you are in direct rebellion to Him when you are in your sin. He has every right to be indignant with you and with your sin. And I'll tell you this, frankly, I am thankful that God is indignant and that He hates sin. Because of His indignance and His hatred towards sin and iniquity, He then was moved to rescue me from my sin by His compassion, washing me through His precious blood. I am thankful that He's indignant towards sin. He would not tolerate it in my life. He desired a relationship with me and I could not have that relationship because I was unclean and I was a sinner condemned already. Yet in His grace and His mercy, He did everything that He had to do to remove His wrath from my life and to bear that wrath in my place at the cross because He was indignant with sin. Let's just go back to the garden. God created Adam to fellowship intimately with Him. And when sin entered in, that fellowship was broken and from that time on, God has been indignant toward iniquity. But I'm thankful not only is He indignant, He's also compassionate. That He has shown compassion to those who He has called out of darkness and into light. Receive mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. But in this account here, Jesus is clearly communicating His indignation. Revealing His righteous anger towards sin. He was offended by this. Isn't it interesting that we live in a time that we care about everyone being offended? Except God. Except God. We don't want to offend our next-door neighbor by sharing the Gospel with them. We don't want to offend that person who's in blatant immorality by sharing with them that that sin and it will be judged and it will be condemned in hell if they don't repent. We don't do those things because we're afraid it may offend someone. Jesus confronts here this irreverence by communicating indignation because He knows this, it is offensive to God. All sin is offensive to God. Watch this. Even the ones that you're hiding that you think He doesn't see, He's still because He doesn't know all. He's still offended by sin. He's indignant toward it. It is the very thing that has cut off man from a right relationship to God. His anger toward sin is right. Why? It's always right. Because He's always holy. In fact, Scripture tells us that He's thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy, therefore His indignation towards sin is right. The psalmist said in Psalm chapter 5, again, verse 4, he says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord of whores. I don't know what you're going to do with that Scripture, but what I choose to do with that Scripture is believe it and apply it. That God is still indignant with sin and irreverence just as Jesus was here on the Temple Mount. Revealed His righteousness. Anger. Did you know this? Every time Jesus gets angry, it's right. Not me. Sometimes I get angry in my flesh. It's not always right when I get angry. I can tell you this, sometimes it's right. Did you know you can be be angry as a Christian and still be right? You can can be angry and still be right with God as long as you are agreeing with Jesus on the things that you're angry about and you sin not. But here He is. He's right in His anger because He is holy in all that he does. But why is he angry with sin? Look at the context here. It's in the context of worship. He is angry with sin because sin alienates us from worship. Doesn't it? Sin alienates us from God, it cuts us off. In fact, Colossians tells us this in chapter 1, verse 21 it says, Once Kirk was alienated from God. Your Bible doesn't say it just like that. But put your name there. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. What does that say to us? It says to us, if we're still in our sin, we've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are still cut off from God, we are still enemies, Watch this. Pay attention. He is still indignant toward our wickedness. In fact, you don't believe God is indignant toward wickedness? Read the final judgment. Those who fail to repent and turn to faith in Jesus Christ will experience the indignation and the wrath of God in hell for all eternity. You say, well preacher, that's not going to make you popular saying those things. I already told you this. I'm not in a popularity contest. I am called by God to deliver the truth of the Word of God, even if it communicates the fact that Jesus was indignant in this situation, and that God is indignant of sin even still today. I'm thankful. Not only did He reveal His indignation towards sin, He reacted. He reacted. Give us a look to see. A God who detests sin enough to do something about it. Aren't you thankful that we have a God who hates sin enough to do something about it? 2,000 years ago, the very Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, died in my place on a cross because God was indignant with my sin. In every ounce of wrath, in every ounce of fury, that fell upon Jesus Christ that day outside of Jerusalem did not belong to Jesus Christ. It belonged to Kirk Hall. It belonged to the sinners who God would call out of darkness into light to believe and to trust in Him as their Lord and Savior. He was so indignant with sin that He did something about it. Oh, He went into action here. Revealed, communicated very clearly His indignation when he drove the offenders out of the Father's house. What a glimpse. What a glimpse into the true Jesus, his desire and his passion to purge sin. Oh, I'm thankful he desires to purge me of my sin, that he goes the distance to do it. Here we see. Jesus communicating in verse 15. Indignation. He hasn't failed to communicate this. Liberal theologians want to keep you from seeing this. They want to keep you from hearing about this. He hasn't failed to communicate it. His righteous hatred and his indignation towards sin is made very clear throughout all of Scripture. Therefore, we must understand, we must recognize, God is indignant toward our sin. In fact, it is that very matter that should cause us to call out to Jesus this very day to save us from the wrath that is to come. To relieve us from the weight of that sin. To remove the eternal judgment and penalty of that sin that He bore for us on the cross. Would you cry out to Him today to save you from certain indignation toward your wickedness? this event we're looking at this morning, just a precursor, to the judgment that is to come. Just a precursor. Oh you can read the end and I promise you in the end Jesus is going to drive all sin from this earth. and he's going to do it. How? On that white horse with eyes aflame. And with the Word of God proceeding out of His mouth, He is going to drive out the darkness with the truth. Here He is giving us the precursor. What He's going to do. What a glorious day that will be. We see that Jesus, they don't want you to see, confronts your reverence, communicates indignation. Literally making a whip. Driving people from the temple mount. Oh, that's a little different than the fluffy Jesus that they taught you about in Sunday school, isn't it? Why did He do this? The next point is this. Because the Jesus that they don't want you to see commands integrity. He commands it. not an option. He commands integrity. Verse 16, To those who sold doves, He said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn My Father's house into... A market. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. There you go. Wow! We remember in the Old Testament in the Scriptures that it said zeal for his house will consume him. That passion and that zeal for true worship being restored. Oh, Jesus had that passion. It was very evident. Jesus here is commanding integrity by His rebuke both in what He spoke and what they saw. Example that He gave. He does this by rebuking the lack of integrity standing there before Him. Jesus confronts this lack of integrity with boldness. You know my prayer is? My prayer is that God would raise up a group of men who would stand in a pulpit with boldness and preach with all fervor and zeal and passion. God still commands and demands integrity. He rebukes their lack of integrity. It was a bold rebuke of their unethical practices. Well, Jesus didn't say, hey guys, we need to have a conversation about these issues. So sick of hearing that. He didn't say, let's just have a conversation about these issues. He said, shut up and listen. He had their attention. Oh, can you imagine there that day as they saw saw Jesus weaving the strands together as He prepared to drive them out of the temple? What is about to happen? Then when He exercises His authority as omnipotent God Almighty there before them, oh, they knew it's time to listen. There's no room for talking here. No, No need to have a conversation. He's about to speak. And when He speaks, he says, your practices are unethical. I don't approve of them. It was a bold rebuke of their unethical practices. I would to God, again, that He would raise up men who would stand in the pulpit and boldly rebuke the unethical practices that we see over and over again in modern church culture. Jesus wasn't afraid to do that. It was a bold rebuke. And then we see a bold reminder. bold reminder of what? His love for the Father. His love for the Father. He commands integrity because of His love for the Father. Isn't that the key ingredient in our lives if we're going to live lives of integrity? Love for the Father? Jesus commands integrity because of His love for the Father. What does He say to them? He rebukes them because they were doing this in His Father's house. They had made His house a marketplace. A bazaar. A flea market. However we want to refer to it to understand. They were ripping people off in the temple courts and Jesus was not putting up with it. He reminded them of His love for the Father. They took note of this. They took note that His rebuke was based on His zeal for true worship in regard to the Father. Now think about that. These uneducated fishermen all of a sudden looked at each other and they said, remember Psalm 69.9. Psalm 69.9 says, for zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. It was prophetically a reference to Jesus Christ. The disciples, as the Holy Spirit prompted them, their brains said, ding, ding, ding. Zeal for His house. These people have brought insult and irreverence toward God and Jesus is revealing Himself to them commanding integrity based on the fact that He was not going to allow them to bring reproach upon His Father and His Father's house. His zeal which led Him to command integrity. Zealous integrity will be the mark or a true believer, it is a boldness for truth and a love for God, a boldness for truth and a love for God. Where is that in the so-called church? We want people to tell us what we want to hear, just as the apostle Paul said that it will be that way in the end time. People will gather to themselves, teachers having itching ears to tell them exactly what it is that makes them feel good and what they want to hear. Jesus did not take that approach. He commands integrity here through boldness for truth and a love for God and a zeal for true worship. Oh, He was passionate about true worship. In fact, He would not tolerate anything less throughout His ministry. We're going to see as we look through John, Jesus did not take worship lightly. In fact, He tells one woman that a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. And such are the worshipers the Father seats. While well, Jesus had true zeal for worship, and the Lord through His words of rebuke, and His zealous example here that we see, He commands integrity for God's people. Where is that today? The integrity of God's people. I want you to understand, open integrity is not true integrity. Open integrity is Phariseeism. I'm talking about integrity when you're all by yourself because you're never really all by yourself, are you? Jesus walked into this event here at the Temple Mount and He says you are a bunch of people who have a lack of integrity. You have made my Father's house into a marketplace. You are are making selfish earnings off of worship. That's not integrity. I can tell you this. None of them were sitting around at the Temple Mount talking about how they were ripping people off. They were doing what we do. They were justifying it. I'm just going to do it this one time because my light bills come and do. Or my car notes come and do. I'm just going to do it. nobody's even going to notice. I'm just going to do it just this one time. Cuz I need a little pleasure in this life too, right? But Jesus doesn't accept that. He commands integrity in our worship. And did you know this? Your worship is more than just on Sunday morning. Your worship is how you really live your life. And if you're not living your life with zealous Integrity? You can't hardly say that you're living your life in worship. Jesus gives us a rebuke, and then He gives us an example of what that looks like. His desire to please God over everything. To defend His Father. You have made My Father's house into a market. So we see through this event that that Jesus... That they don't want you to see. Confronts irreverence. He communicates indignation. He commands integrity. And lastly, I want you to see this. He confirms his identity. He confirms his identity. You say, well, Pastor, it seems like every story that we see John tell points to Jesus and his identity. Yes, it does. He wants you to see Jesus above all who he is. It reveals his identity. Look at verses. through Then the Jews demanded of Him what miraculous sign can You show us to prove Your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. We can do the math here and we can understand this was the Herodian temple. This was not Solomon's temple. This is Herod's temple. But the temple He had spoken of was His body. And after... He was raised from the dead. His disciples recalled what he said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They wanted to see a sign. They demanded a sign. Give us a sign that you have the authority to do this. And Jesus said, "I'll give you a sign. Then that sign is going to be this: destroy this temple." Well, he was thinking of himself. Remember, just in the last chapter, John recounted the baptism of Jesus. We know that if we Look at the detailed account of that baptism. The Holy Spirit of God descended on Jesus as a dove. Jesus then, as the God-man, the temple of the Holy Spirit here dwelling among us. Here He is, and He's saying, you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it again. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years. They didn't quite understand what He was talking about, but the Scriptures are true, aren't they? He said, I'm talking about my body. I'm not talking about the literal temple. Then we see in the last verse there in 22 that after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Can you imagine when it finally clicked to those guys? Oh, he did say that if they just—he's dis- the temple, and we who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit are now temples of the living God. Jesus said, "You destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it back up." His disciples said, "That's exactly what he did." Why? Because that's exactly who he is. I want you to see that Jesus is identifying Himself and confirming His identity here that He is truly, number one, the righteous Son of God. How do I know He's confirming that He's the righteous Son of God? Because He's referencing the Father and the fact that He is indignant because the Father has been offended by their irreverence. That you've made my Father's house a marketplace. In the other Gospels, we see this in, this in an account that is similar to this. It is a second cleansing that happens at the end of Jesus' ministry because they just didn't get it. We see He refers to it then. He says, you've made My Father's house into a den of thieves. These people, again, ripping God off because of their irreverence. Jesus confronting them. Showing who He really is. The second Person of the Trinity. The Son of God here dwelling among us. Dwelling there on the temple courts, He is the Son who came to do the will of His Father. Aren't you thankful that Jesus came to do the will of the Father? John 6, verse 38, it says this, Jesus speaking, says, For I have come down from heaven not to do My will, but to do the will of Him who sent Me. Why is it so important that we understand that concept? Because He is our example. He is our example. In the subsistency of the Holy Trinity, He is obedient to the Father, just as we are to be obedient to the Father and His Word. He came to do the will of the Father, revealing that He is the Son, the Son who came not only to do the will of the Father, but the Son who came to impute the righteousness of God to those who would believe. It is only the Son who could impute the righteousness of God to those. Who would believe? Because it is only the Son who came from the Father to do exactly what He did at the cross in saving sinners. He came to impute the righteousness of God to those who were wicked. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That the wrath of God fell upon the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in exchange for His righteousness. What does that mean personally? That the wrath of God that belonged to Kirk Hall, because Kirk Hall is a sinner, fell upon the Son, Jesus Christ, who knew, No sin. He bore that wrath and that punishment that belonged to Me so that He could then credit Me, impute to Me His full righteous standing before the Father. That's the atoning substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Please don't miss that in this lifetime. You are helpless and hopeless without it. He came to show that He is the righteous Son of God. But also, as noticed by... His disciples. It also confirms His identity as the resurrected Savior. Jesus here in just John chapter 2 already prophetically mentioning His death, His burial, and His resurrection. The Gospel. Jesus says, you destroy this temple, speaking of Himself, in three days, I'll raise it back up. You destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it back up. He was saying, I am the resurrection and I am the life. The theme of His ministry. Here He is telling these people long before the cross was ever mentioned, long before the cross was ever a thought in anyone's mind. He says, you can destroy me and you can try all you want, but if you do, I am going to rise again three days later revealing to them that He is truly the resurrected Savior, the One who would give His life as a sacrifice for sinners. The One who would be raised from the grave after three days, just as He proclaims there in verse 22. So we see the risen Savior is the only One who can bring victory over sin, because He's the only One who has conquered sin and the penalty of death in our place. He is the only one who can bring victory over sin. He's the only one who can bring reconciliation with the Father. He's the only one who can bring forgiveness and eternal salvation to all who trust in Him by faith and in Him alone. So through this event, Jesus confirms who He really is. He is the righteous Son of God. He is the resurrected Savior. Long before anyone had any idea, His disciples look back and they say, that's what He said. Oh, can you imagine knowing that He is alive? Knowing that the tomb is empty and them coming to the conclusion? That's exactly what He said. Don't you know that they had to shout in that moment? He is the resurrection and He is the life. He is the risen Savior. He is the Son of the living God just as we have proclaimed and just as He revealed to us. So what do we do with this? How do we just stop here and close up and say, enjoy your Bible lesson? Do we make this real? I prefer to make this real to us. I want to conclude with this. The understanding that we have looked at the Jesus that they don't want us to see has opened our eyes, hopefully this morning, to who He really is. To who He really is. And I hope that it allows us to see some things. And here's the things that I hope that it allows us to see as we give application to this lesson as we close. I want you to understand this. Jesus has the right, because of what we've seen, to confront in reverence in your life. To confront in reverence in your life. What is irreverence? It's anything in your life that does not honor and bring glory to God. That is irreverence to God in your life. I pray today that Jesus, starting with me, Lord, start with me. Show me in my life any area that is irreverent toward You. Why? Because Jesus, You are the Son of the living God. You are the resurrected Savior. You are the Lord. You still have the right to confront irreverence. Please, confront irreverence in the lives of Your people here this morning. He still has the right. Isn't it sad that we've reduced Jesus to some weak God who doesn't have the right to do anything unless we allow Him to do it? That is foolishness. If you're here, His today, you belong to Him. Purchased by His precious blood, He has the right to confront your irreverence. And I pray that it would bring you to your knees in humility and repentance confession. Not only does He have the right to confront irreverence, He has the right to communicate indignation towards sin. He has the right to be angry with sin. Oh, you look at the things that are going on in this world. I know we're quick to look at the things that are going on in the world and not look at the things that are going on in our life that could be contributing to that. But however, we look at the things into the world And we become angry very quickly, don't we? I've talked to many people over the last several months. I don't even watch the news anymore because I get so mad. Well, that's okay. Be angry and sin not. I get mad about the evil things that are going on in this world. In fact, the Scriptures tell me to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. So I understand that you're angry, but you can't go choking folks out. Understand that. Jesus said be angry, but don't sin. However, when we look at Jesus... He communicates His indignation to us in our lives as well. right? I would encourage you to open up the Fox News of your heart and see what stories are being reported. To see if it shouldn't drive you to a place of repentance, humility, knowing that there are things in my life that God is indignant about. You say, well, Kirk, you're the pastor. Do you you think there's times in your life where you do things that God is angry and, and He hates? Yes, absolutely. When I'm in my flesh, He hates it. Every ounce of it. Every ounce of it. in fact, that's why Jesus came to die is to relieve me of that vicious scoundrel known as my old nature. That's why we can't accept it. Because God says it's unacceptable. Especially those of us who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. All the old is gone, and behold, all things have been made new. He's purging you of all the things that He detests. Rightfully so. Shouldn't Jesus still have the right to do that? Shouldn't He still have the right to convict you and to communicate indignation when you blaspheme Him with your Christian lives? Number three. Jesus has the right to not only confront irreverence, communicate indignation towards sin. He has the right to command integrity. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, don't get upset when the Holy Spirit commands integrity in your life. You're being sanctified, and that is a very good thing. I am thankful for the sanctification process in my life where the Holy Spirit agrees with the Father and with the Son that we are not going to let Him be what He used to be. Thank You, Lord. Thank You. Because You were indignant toward who I used to be. I am thankful that in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, You are making me who You desire me to be. A person who lives a life that is pleasing to You and brings glory and honor and praise to the One who has saved me by His grace and His mercy. Jesus has the right. He still has it to command integrity. Right? And for all you people who would say, well, who does He think He is? God. Why do we complicate that? When Jesus speaks and He commands integrity, He is God speaking. Please understand that. I pray that He's speaking to some of you today. And we see that he has the right to confront irreverence, communicate indignation towards sin and command integrity because of who he is. Because of who he is. He is the righteous son of God. God incarnate who came to dwell among us full of grace and truth. He is the resurrected savior, the only one who can breathe life into your dead soul. would you trust Him today by faith as your Lord and your Savior? Through this event, Jesus, the real Jesus, shows us who He is. He is a Savior who confronts irreverence, communicates indignation, He commands integrity. He confirmed His identity and His authority to do all of those things. So I ask you this last question as we close. If Jesus was to walk up the courtyard of worship in your life, what would He find? A valid question in light of this text. What would He find? Would He find you using God only for how He benefits you? or your family, or your bank account? Or would He find a person of true reverence who despises sin, who lives a life of integrity because of what Jesus Christ has done for them? Is your life full of irreverence toward your Creator? Would He, if He walked into that courtyard of your life, Would He be indignant about the things that He sees? Would He see the integrity in your life as a professing believer? points to the reality that you truly know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Have you properly trusted Jesus by faith? Jesus, the Son of God. Resurrected Savior. Have you properly trusted in Him to save you? and cleanse you from all of your sin. I pray today that when you hear His voice, you do not harden your heart. but That you cry out to Him in repentance and in faith, and you trust in Him and Him alone to save you this very day. Because there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly declares that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I pray this morning, if the Spirit is drawing you to be forgiven of your sin and washed and cleansed and saved through the power of Jesus Christ, I pray today you would surrender to Him as your Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to You thanking You for Jesus because He is our only hope. He is our only hope. And being relieved of the wrath that certainly awaits us. Because we are sinners. God, I just pray for the sinner who's here today, who all they have to look forward to is that judgment and wrath that today, Lord, by Your grace and Your mercy, You would step in. That You would rescue them. Paying the complete price for their redemption that You made at the cross. Applying it to them. Saving their very soul this very day. But I pray that You would in the lives of Christians today. You would help them to see the true Jesus of Scripture. That You would cause them to rejoice and to celebrate. That their Savior is not a weak, impotent, powerless Savior. That they have a Savior who is mighty. Who is mighty to save. And we thank You for that. Holy Spirit, we invite You to change us, to mold us, and to make us into the people You desire us to be according to your word, according to the will of God. We pray and we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness.